We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernane. So last week we had a little bit of a discussion on the road with the team about the players and the staff with the relationship between physical fitness and mental toughness. So it was something that's always kind of interested me. I've always thought that physical fitness and mental toughness went hand in hand. I've, I always looked as a player, if, if you were physically fit, you would then come with a little bit more confidence to focus the energy everything those comp- components drove the mental toughness aspect of it I don't personally I don't believe that every player who's physically fit is mentally tough but in my experience the players who have been mentally tough have always taken care of the fitness component so I threw that up on on it was a it was a pretty lively debate in Portland uh, Craig Harrington who's on our staff was was pretty adamant that I was talking nonsense so I thought you know what I'll throw it up on on Twitter as well and see what everyone thinks and it did the same thing it was a pretty lively debate yesterday on Twitter I put a, a video of a fitness testing and we had we had people coaches talking about whether they thought it was yeah you, you have to do this because it it does measure you know there's a there's a resilience aspect to it and there's mental toughness part of it and there's also people who said that, yeah, zero, zero correlation between the two. So what I did was I, uh, one of the coaches who, who jumped in and talked was Mark Wilson. Mark was a former Manchester, went to the Manchester United Academy, um, was a member of the United squad between 1997 and 2001, also played in Middlesbrough, moved over to FC Dallas here, MLS, and now coaches in New Jersey. So Mark put a bit of input in the post. He said, well, yeah, it's, it's, there's a relationship between the two of them, but you've got to understand context as well. And the context between performing in front of 70,000 people has very little to do with physical fitness. So I was intrigued by that. So I contacted Mark and asked him if he wouldn't mind coming on the, on the podcast to have a chat. So here is Mark's insight. Uh, we, you know, we go, go straight into it here. I, I wanted to get straight into the point. Let's talk about mental toughness and how it's defined at the highest, highest level with Manchester United in those teams where they were pretty dominant in English football. And then basically, you know, how can we replicate that in our environments today? So Mark's, Mark's insight is absolutely brilliant. I really think you're going to enjoy this. Um, please, please, please. Give it a shout out on Twitter, whether you agree, disagree, please keep the conversation going. I think anytime people disagree with posts or disagree with with opinions on Twitter and put their own philosophies through, I think it makes the coaching community better because at least we're questioning things and at least we're engaging one another. The only thing I won't have is people just dismissing anything as, no, that's just not right. Um, that's not I don't think that makes any of us better so this is a good conversation Um, please 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 as well spread the word of the podcast it would mean a lot if you just give it a like uh, give it a rating send a tweet out about it just keep the word going thank you so much for listening here he is and enjoy 
Mark, thanks so much for joining me for the Modern Soccer Coach podcast. Nice and early this morning. It is nice and early, but uh, an absolute pleasure to be on with you, Gary. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. So I, I wanted to follow up with the conversation yesterday on Twitter. So in a, in terms of mental toughness, we, we seem to have this vision about pushing through pain. Uh, your input and insight was more, you mentioned that, you know, changes in context and about playing in front of 70,000 people um, is a different challenge of mental toughness. Uh, how would you define it at the top level of the game? Um, I, I think, you know, I think there's multiple layers of, of how you refine or or how you develop this, this mental toughness and resilience. And look, I think, I think fitness testing is certainly one way um, to challenge yourself in terms of personal improvement, personal development, because we all know your body gets to a point when you're working to your maximum, when, you know, it starts to try and shut down on you. Um, so being able to overcome that, that last kind of, I say it's 5% onwards. So if you're working at 95%, how do you, how do you attain that max without actually putting your brain in a place where, you know what, you just switch off and go and you, and you, and you drive and you push. I think that's one aspect and element to, to building this overall picture of, of psychological and mental toughness. Um, and, and the discussion on Twitter yesterday you just mentioned was was do you think it can be built um from fitness exercises i think one of the building blocks can certainly be built um from pushing your body and your your mind to its maximum in those environments um but the the in terms of overall that would that would become a little one-dimensional in terms of okay here's my maximum can i go beyond Mm. here's a fitness test can i beat my last score it's still a little one-dimensional and the reason I, I kind of jumped on Twitter and added the, the context and those factors in is because it, it wasn't to diminish, um, you know, or even argue against that being a factor in developing, um, you know, mental resilience, because I do think the, the, the fitness element of it, you know, I've seen a, a Beckham and a Veron nearly outrun a bleed test. Um, and he, here's the, the context I kind of have from in my own mind. Um, you know, a David Beckham could transfer that into the field week in, week out. And many, many years throughout his career, he was one of the top performers physically, but technically, tactically, psychologically. And Baron, one of the one of the greatest players of, of a, a generation of Argentines. And, you know, he struggled at United. Um, you know, he had moments of absolute brilliance and genius. Um, but this is a guy who could... I think he actually did outrun David on one bleep test um, that I remember seeing indoors at Carrington. Yet you put him on the field and you've got Roy Keane berating you and demanding more. Mm. Um, And you've got fans who are wondering why, you know, for the money that was spent, why you're not leading the charge in terms of performance. Um, He couldn't, he couldn't quite handle that or it didn't appear that he could handle that. So, that would be an indicator for me, seeing those two run in a gym and, and go at it and Veron coming out on top. But you look at the consistency of a David Beck in, in terms of handling the overall experience of being a Manchester United player, um, it was almost night and day. Mm. So let's talk about Beckham then. So he was, because he would be someone that I would, I would see as being almost the epitome of mental toughness due to the 98 World Cup 98 experience coming back from that. Um, 
little aspect with Alex Ferguson at United coming back <laughs> from that, playing with big, big clubs and almost taking his brand to another level. He, t- he took a lot yep. of criticism, England, all that stuff. Um, yeah. But what what made him, or, or do you agree with me first and foremost? And secondly, if so, what made him that way? I do agree with you. And, it, it, you know, I wasn't intentionally coming on this morning to actually talk specifically about Bex because sometimes you, you, you think about a Roy Keane or a Paul Scholes or a Nicky Butt, and they all had unbelievable, you know, this relentless will and, and mental toughness. But I'm, I'm using kind of Beckham as an example because of his, his levels of fitness as well and where he could take himself to. And you, you're absolutely right on the money, Gary, in terms of mentioning those um, challenges and obstacles he's had to overcome um, to maintain and uh, himself as, as being regarded as one of the best players in the world. And for, for me, he was. He, you know, you, you look, just look back at his highlight reels and the way he, you know, the way he performed. There's, there's nobody that had control over a soccer ball in terms of passing and crossing. Um, it was very unique. You know, you could say Paul Scholes had and, and he did. But I think Bex's variety and range um, from free kicks to 60-yard passes to not having to be a defender to whip the ball either side. He could drive it one side or curl it round the other. Um, you know, I, I think when we're talking about mental resilience and the ability to continue to perform and execute your technique under severe pressure, under heavy criticism, under this perception that you're you're the good-looking, blonde-haired, you know, boy from London who, who's a little bit soft, it couldn't have been further from the truth um, because he was relentless in his pursuit of being the very best um, on the field and nobody could ever question that. Anybody that's played with him and been around him um, and just watch the way he plays. Um, it's evident that despite challenges, despite, you know, the abuse he's had to take at times, um, this this relentless pursuit of being the best and not being affected by anything external, um, you know, is, is you know transferred. And, and now, when you look at him and you look back in his career, without doubt, he was one of the best midfielders of a generation. Mm. Well, kind of like the fitness test, where almost searching for a relationship between something impacting the other, um, confidence in Beckham, obviously, you know, the swagger that he had off the pitch and the confidence he carried himself on the pitch. Was there a relationship between that confidence and, and the work ethic and the extra practice? Definitely. You know, I think the more, you, the more you practice, the more you build this confidence because, you know, whether consciously or subconsciously, um, you're aware of, of that all of these repetitions, as long as they're the right repetitions, as long as they're relevant repetitions and extra practice that adds an actual value to your game. So it's done at high tempo. It's done with a challenge. It's testing you. Even even when the manager isn't looking, when the coach turns his back, because most of your extra practice is just you, um, maybe a couple of other players. It's maintaining that standard when everybody else turns their back. As long as it's maintained at a high level, then... Yeah, that, that builds confidence or I believe it builds an intrinsic confidence and value because, you know, your, your brain and your body are responding um, and you're seeing the end product of, of executing on free kick after free kick, you know, um, different range of techniques in your passing. Um, and it, it does it does give you that confidence. Look, it's easy to have that confidence chipped away 
mm. when you're in front of 60, 70,000 fans and you, you have a bad 15-minute spell. But this is why, for me, the best are the very, very best. They've, they've practised to a level that no matter what criticism comes their way, they have a complete, you know, unwavering self-belief in their own ability to perform via that process of practice, practice, practice at the very, very highest tempo and at the highest level they possibly can. Mm. We, I was talking to a group of coaches last night and about almost guiding your players towards when there are, you know, there's one aspect of getting them to do extra work, which players are, are quite reluctant to these days over here. The, ne the next element is, is trying to, as you said, that, that work has to be quality. There's an element of Beckham. Maybe it's the, the YouTube clip that's that's the practice and the free kicks, but surely he did more than take a bag of balls and put them on top of the 18 and bend them in the top corner. Surely there was other elements <laughs> of the game he worked on. There was, yeah. And look, isn't it, you know, it's probably a little bit of an issue and, and more so in the US. We, we see highlight clips, right? And when we see highlight clips as a youngster, we think that's what the game is. Um, so people will see highlight clips of, of Messi, Ronaldo and Neymar dribbling past players and scoring scoring goals. And then if you don't watch an entire game of soccer, um, you then start to believe um, that that's the game. Um, and, and you don't see the other aspects, all, all of the, the work, all of the movement, all of the movement at high tempo that's going into creating this end product. Um, and, and, you know, with, with David, it wouldn't only be free kicks, it would be range of passing, it would be little drills where he'd be, he'd be checking in to, to, a, to a fullback to receive the ball, to get turned quickly, to hit a player, you know, to hit a player on the run 30, 40, 50 yards away and drop it into his path. And that, that's an art in itself, you know. When, when I ask some of the players I, you know, I work with to, to hit a player after receiving a pass, when they're moving at 100% of their maximum speed, and there's a defender dropping in and chasing them at the same time. Can you drop it directly into his path seven, eight times out of ten? Mm. Um, and unless you practice these specific techniques in a realistic game scenario, um, you know, I see it all the time. Players get onto the field in, in a game and, and they're scratching their head going, well, I did this in practice. But, well, yeah, you did at half pace. And, mm. yeah, you did under no pressure. And, yeah, you did with nobody pressing you on your first touch to get out of your feet into the right space. So this unrealistic expectation when game day approaches and on game day, um, it undoes that, that confidence that you, you see in practice because if, if it's not performed at any high tempo and your maximum capacity, then, of course, when you come up against a team that's competing, it, it's it's going to it's not going to be easy for you to execute and, and you're not going to have practised in, in the right manner or, or under the right circumstances and pressure, which makes the environment one of the most vital things um, for player development. IMO. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that pressure then of you know playing at Old Trafford, you mentioned about Verone earlier and dealing with... Yep. There, there's a lot of... United could be the... That could be the stage almost as as an example of a player coming up. There are a lot of players that come to that that level and struggle and don't step up. Um, mm -hmm. Did you see any? You must have saw quite a few of those in your time at Old Trafford. Did you? Did you? Do those players have anything? In um, 
In in terms of players not, um, you know, coming in with a big expectation and not performing. In terms, yeah, in terms, was there was their personality? Were there introverts? Were they were they? Was there yeah. something connected to their personality? They obviously yeah, were all fit. It's, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, I, who can I use as a good example? In a contrast, probably Yap Stam and Roy Keane. If if I'm given examples of of players succeeded, and then let's say a. Uh, who struggled? A Jordi Cruyff. Jordi Cruyff was somebody who had immense talent. Um, you know, he was a player who could do things with a ball that, that most of us couldn't. Bags and bags of talent, and you'd see him in practice. And there were days where you're like, "How are you not playing in in the first team every week?" Um, Jordi may have argued that you know it's because he wasn't selected, but there were moments where. Even in, in a treble winning year where the demand, despite continuing to win, just grew, it increased. It didn't diminish and complacency didn't kick in. It actually became tougher as the team were winning because the standards were rising almost weekly and then monthly. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jordi was a player who, uh, who ability-wise, not... A question, not a doubt in my mind, was good enough to play in, in that first, um, every week. But the, the pressure and the demands, and, and more so the internal demands the players put upon one another. You know, the, the gaffer kind of drove it, um, you know, but the players then took control of, of the environment and would demand more and more and more of each other. Um, and if you couldn't accept, if you couldn't deal with that challenge being put upon you, you know, it could be activity to activity. We're not talking just day by day. It could be, you know, five minutes to the next five minutes. Um, then, then you were looked upon slightly differently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that puts another added pressure on you to respond and, and build that confidence back in you as a player. Um, and, and Jordi, it, for, for me, was a player who kind of struggled with that. Um, he might tell you different. Mm. He might tell you different. But but from my perspective, somebody with all, all his ability, um, you know, should have probably played a lot more games for United. And, and it, it, the, you know, my, my saying to our players is, you know, ability won't define how successful you are in the game. Your mentality always will. And mm. I think it's becoming more and more evident and has been in the past that that is the case. Mm. I listened to an interview a, a few weeks ago with Michael Beale and he was talking about talent being transferable, that it's not transferable. We think that we can take someone out of one place, put them in another environment and everything goes. So almost with that, you know, if a player is, you know, is a big, big name signing, say a Mark Bosnich or, or Croy, Jordi Cruyff falls, falls a little bit short at United. Is there any intentional work that goes into getting them to that level psychologically or is that, is that just something at that level or at that era that you just either had or you didn't have? It's a great question. Um, is it unique to that era? I think it, it was just an expectation. Um, and we we always, from being from being 14 years old and to leaving as a 21-year-old, I was always told, you're here because you're a Man United player. You have ability. Mm. That's not in question and it'll never be in question. But the one thing that will always be questioned is your character and your resilience. Um, and it, it became, it just became a, a, an automatic expectation from peer to peer. 
um, manager to, to coaching staff, you know, manager and coaching staff to players that um, you were expected to deal with this or you weren't there or you shouldn't be there. Um, and it, it's, you know, I, I, I suppose I get asked a number of times, you know, did it when you stood in the tunnel and, and when you, you're playing the first team, does it, was it amazing? Did it feel special and unique? And the answer is no. At the time, it didn't. It felt very normal because you've been prepared to perform in that environment. Yeah, you might catch yourself once in a blue moon walking down the tunnel and your parents are stood in there or sat in the stands and, and, and the music starts playing for a Champions League game and the, the hairs stand up on the back of your neck. Um, if you could see me now, Gary, I'm smiling as I'm saying this because now looking back, it's one of the most humbling experiences and, and was a privilege. But you're trained to deal and react as if this is just normal life. Mm-hmm. Um, and for your Bosniches and your Kreuz and and other players, even later after I'd gone, you know, your, your Forlands, who were phenomenal players and, and didn't quite hit the heights they should have, I think that expectation can become a burden. Um, and then if you don't, if you don't accept it, change or or continue to challenge yourself, um, you end up leaving. It, it's it's as simple as that. And there are there are mechanisms. There are sports psychologists in place. And Bill Bezik was there. Um, for a while um, and then at Middlesbrough with me again and you know Bill does a fantastic job but Bill would always say you know once I give you the content your action will determine your intention will determine um, what that content represents and how it affects you moving forward so despite all of the resources we have at our disposal as a player um, it's still our responsibility and we have to be accountable for that to do the right thing, to do the best possible thing with that content, with that info. Um, so, yeah, for, for me, it was just an expectation at United and there were mechanisms in place to help you through it, but it was still your responsibility mm-hmm. to to be relentless in that pursuit of excellence every day. On the subject of accountability then, you mentioned uh, Roy Keane, one of my favourite <laughs> players there earlier. So, you know, with, with mental toughness and creating an environment of mental toughness, we almost, again, the mind takes us to an element of fear almost and producing fear. How much of how much of Keane was fear and how much of it was just respect? Oh, God, it, it was, a, it was a, a big mix of both, you know, you... Keeney was was fearless himself, but he could he could instill fear in every opponent he played against and teammates at times. You know, we've John and I, who you've had on before, we've you know we've had young versus old in games, and and you know there, there was as much onus put on that as playing Liverpool in the Premier League on a, on a Saturday. You know, um, and and Keeney would put in as much effort and as much determination to absolutely steamroll the youngsters who want his place today as he would in a, in a game against Liverpool. And he would do it by psychologically, you know, drilling you in terms of vocally, verbally, demanding more, even though you weren't on his team. He'd see you give a couple of passes away and he's, you know, he's on the opposition team and he's nailing you <laughs> uh-huh. in, your, in your own team to, uh, to be better, demand more. And then he'd look at your teammates and he'd go, demand more from him. Mm. You know, why are you accepting that? So it, it's not him, him, you know, digging you out 
in an individual level. He kind of is, but he's making it a collective responsibility. But he's also making it his responsibility, even though he's on the other team, which I think was just phenomenal um, to be around and see. And, and, and whether you love him or hate him, you know, he's Marmite a little bit at times. Um, I love him. I, I think he had such a profound impact on on me as a player in terms of building, just watching him. You can't not be in, it's infectious the way he plays. It's infectious the way he trains. Um, yes, he's blunt. Yes, he's direct. But look at what he achieved. Look at what he did in a generation that was, you know, he he also refused to change. And maybe, maybe, and if he ever hears this, he'll, you know, might challenge it one day. But maybe that refusal to adapt or may have, may have affected him as he transitioned into management. Because I think the one thing Ferguson did well, and it's not documented enough, he, he adjusted and adapted to different generations of players with different mentalities and stayed at the top for 20, 25 years. I think it's remarkable. Um, and that must have been very hard for him to do because as a Glaswegian from from a rough part you know, of Scotland um, and that very tough mentality, um, he got the best out of many different generations of players, which I think is commendable for, for Roy. You know, one of the best midfielders to ever play the game. Um, definitely an inspiration. Um, maybe that that's that was his struggle in accepting players just grew up differently mm. and had a different mentality and getting the best out of them. Sometimes does take a different approach. I wish it didn't because <laughs> I'm a big believer in, in some of the things that were instilled in me and I, and I was privileged to see as a young player. Um, but that's a world we live in at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting because you know obviously I've never I've never met a Roy Keane was always my hero and and as an Irishman, you know we we talk about him a lot. He's a, he's a there's always a night of a conversation with your friends that goes eventually to Roy Keane as a conversation. But talking to professionals that have played with him, played under him, worked alongside him, nobody says many bad words about him. No. No, there's, there's nothing. I mean, when you look from the outside in, people question why he didn't make make it as a top manager. And people are saying didn't make it yet. I mean, it, it is a yet. There's still lots of time for Roy to become a, you know, and he's doing a great job at, at the Republic of Ireland. And, and you know, he's he's at Villa. And I think he's still at Villa, unless I'm not up to speed. Um, doing doing both. Um, but yeah, I, I, I met very few people who who would say Roy doesn't have a profound impact um, on them when, when either he meets them or they've played with him. Um, he's just, he just demands excellence. And he, he, you talk about culture of accountability. He was a standard setter in, in terms of being accountable for his own performance and, and everybody else's. I've never seen a player since him be able to drag an entire team through a game and make them win. Mm, well, that would be the best way to describe when when the team and this is Manchester United, by the way, mm. when that team full of world class players was having an off day, he would be the one driving the entire team forward. And and I, no joke when you know I, I don't say this lightly, he could make that entire team win a game. 
um, just by his, his determination, his resilience, his character. And let's, let's not forget his quality on the ball. Mm. Um, he, he was a fantastic player, fantastic passer at the ball. Um, so, yeah, very, very unique man, very unique individual. And um, somebody, if we're talking about resilience and setting standards and, um, you know, that mental toughness required at the elite end of the game epitomises everything you need to be. Mm-hmm. So we, we always, you know, in the US, there's there's great, almost weekly, the conversation of, hey, if a, if a Xavi grew up over here, you know, he would get overlooked because of the physical aspect and Iniesta wouldn't get a Division One scholarship, et cetera, et cetera. I, you know, that, to me, that, that conversation doesn't do much, but I, I, the, the Roy Keane one, maybe it's just my personality, does an American can America produce a Roy Keane because that that accountability that leadership do you risk getting excluded socially over here more than it is in England? Yeah, look, look that's again another another great point, Gary. Um, having having experienced, um, you know, I mean, you've got way more experience over here than I have in terms of environments and 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 you know what what you've what you've done over here in the game, but. From from my five years here, um, I've certainly seen environments that won't produce or can't, as they stand, produce somebody like a Roy Keane um, or produce the qualities he had psychologically because the environment's not set up to do it. Mm. Um, and in terms of environment, I'm, I'm talking about when when we when I see you know a curriculum, when I see a philosophy, when I read a methodology, when I read the mission statement of of soccer clubs, and whether that's at grassroots level all the way up the pyramid to the professional game, um, I read it and it inspires me. I step out onto a soccer field and I feel let down. Um, in what I'm seeing because what I read and what I see doesn't match up. Mm. Um, and and it, it, it boils down to, are you, are you going to take all of these things you're writing down and intentionally put them into practice, not just loosely say, well, yeah, we do this. Yeah, we do have a, a culture of accountability. Do you? Well, what are you doing to measure that? What are you doing to record it? What are you doing to improve it? Um, and sadly, most of the, the responses I get um, are it's met, it's met with silence. And, and I'm not always that direct because, you know, being a um, being a company beyond Pulse uh, trying to affect that change. But I've got the privilege at the moment of being in a, a lot of a lot of soccer environments and some good, um, you know, some some need improvement. And the DOCs and technical directors are very progressive. Um, in terms of their, their critical thinking of how they can can improve that environment, but I I certainly don't see the the on field aspect mirroring what what's written down. Um, and the, the the only way to develop and create and build is is collectively. Mm. You know, if you don't have a buy in from your entire staff, and I'm talking about grassroots level coaching here. But, travel soccer level even into your da's your ecnl's your npl's um if you don't have a a culture of accountability collectively um then there's going to be a hole in your training environment somewhere that's going to have a a negative impact um 
and 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 that takes a complete collective buy-in from all of your staff members yeah it's, i would argue that similar to the the beckham theme about you know a, a proper mental toughness and and an environment that can impact someone i think as coaches then it's about being confident in that that uh, criteria or that syllabus or that philosophy is that they've probably that the philosophy that we all look at that's got the nice club emblem on it and that goes into detail and patterns and model or whatever it is it's probably taken from somebody else so if they haven't or if they haven't created it then how can they stand by and i think that's i think that's what we're again i, I was talking to a group of coaches last night and i was saying that i think we're in danger over here of of copying people's approach in europe and then the, the one of the greatest things that people are like what do you like about living in america i say the diversity in the country do you do you think as a coaching community then we're kind of moving away from that because we think that it's it should be copied from barcelona or copied from manchester united or city at the minute yeah i mean i i, I do think the us has to find its own identity um you can take all the models you want um from europe and try and apply them here but the biggest challenge for me is finding unity between regions, between coaches, um, because we're all in the same business of player development. Um, you know, we're, we're looking to produce a, a US FIFA World Eleven player mm. consistently. Um, it hasn't happened yet. And while there's diversity, um, and I think that is one of the, you know, it's a beautiful thing over here. Um you know, I, I've mixed with coaching staffs that are, you've got a Brazilian, you've got a Serbian, you've got a Croatian, you've got a German, you've got an Englishman, three Americans. And you've all grown up watching the game and seeing the game in a different light, a different perspective. And it all has value, collective value. Um, you, you've, you know, which I, I think, I think diversity in culture um, a mix of it can, can build phenomenal ideas when you when you piece it together, I do think you have to be aligned when it comes down to the final say in curriculum development and style of play, and mm. and even down to to, to coaching kind of methodology. Um, you've got to find some synergy and then and then stick to it as a group, even if you're sacrificing some of the things you may have learned as a kid or or growing up. I do think there has to be unity in that way. But when and I had this debate the other day with somebody. When you look at the world's land masses, Canada, India, China, US, Australia, um, they're struggling to be powerhouses despite their population in world football. Um, you could argue Brazil and Argentina are equally as huge, um, but their number one sport is football, soccer. Mm -hmm. um, in all of those other land mass countries with, with huge populations and um, big, big, kind of volume areas um soccer is not the number one sport it's number two or number three or in some cases number four um so finding unity when you're you're challenged by one size of area and the u.s is huge um two challenge the the you know the perception of it not being the number one sport in that country and three I do think there's definitely a divide between coaches um, and as phenomenal as an environment the USC convention is, I'd love to see more people being open and free with their ideas and their concepts because 
like you said earlier, they're not they're not brand new. Mm. Everything is now a hybrid of something else that's been adapted and evolved and is being pieced together and, and, and thrown into an environment. Um, you know, so if we could collectively bring that that mentality together, I think we would be able to move forward and not tend to look at a Lamasia model, you know, an Ajax model, because if you bring a Lamasia model into a travel soccer club, it probably applies to only two to three percent of the club because that Lamasia model is being trained and utilized with in. And this is, in my opinion, is being training and utilized with elite level players. I don't know how you can apply some of those concepts um, to, let's say, intermediate or lower ability level travel soccer players. I think it takes a different type of contact, a different type of delivery um, and a different type of methodology to, to an elite performance environment. Um, you can have it sitting at the top of your tree as a cherry on top to say when you come into our DA, NPL, ECNL environment, this is the methodology we use. Um, but at, and if you're not in that environment, I think there has to be a slightly different approach to development at lower ability levels. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Where we're we're just taking something. It's I mean, it's it's today's version of lazy coaching almost. Maybe twenty years ago, lazy coaching was sitting doing nothing, and today's is is uh, is Google, YouTube, and Twitter has killed <laughs> coaching, isn't it? <laughs> it it has, and and we're you know I think we're we're in an era of let's take an idea off off of Google or, or the internet, and um, you know we'll try it once, and if it doesn't work, let's let's can it and find something else. Mm. Um, the 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 persistence in having a three six nine you know twelve month two year plan, um, it's difficult, right? I mean, I'm sure you you've, you 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 know this well, Gary. Um, you can't make a plan for two weeks. You can't make a plan for a month. Uh, you can make a micro, you know, and this is back to your periodization, macro, micro, meso. Um, you can have within your yearly plan um, different targets to hit, um, different benchmarks to hit, and that's developmentally or performance-wise if, you, if, you're, if you're a high-level team. Um, but if you don't have a bigger picture um, for development, then... I think we're we're underserving our players because we're we're training players and developing players and they're developing themselves to perform in a game that's going to look very different five to ten years from now mm. if you're a ten or eleven year old. So I think history is an important aspect of future development, and I think having an expectation or a vision of where the game will be um, in five to ten years will also affect how you develop and put your plan together for every tier of your club. Um, because the history tells us where we've been and where we are now, and your your unique vision of where you think the game will be five to ten years from now will determine your plan moving forward. Um, but if if you don't think about it in those critical layers, in that critical detail, um, we'll just go through the daily motions of, okay, I'll write my lesson plan up, I'll deliver it, um, and and we'll see what happens next. That's so true. So true. We're we're. The difference between copying and innovating is just is is the difference between probably Spain and and the U.S. at the minute. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it is. Um, you know, as you know, as is the we've we've tried to stay on on point with the call in terms of building resilience and 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 testing mental strength. I think I think scenario based learning, um, and there's a lot of of research behind this. 
scenario based learning is is a way to challenge that and build that mental resilience um and i've been speaking with a couple of guys about creating you know 50 60 70 different game specific scenarios so as an example you're 2-0 down um you're fourth bottom of a of a premier league um you're one point you're one goal ahead on goal difference you've got 15 minutes in this small sided game or 8v8 um or you're a player down for instance um and you you hand a card to a player and he delivers the scenario to his team um and as a coach you have a set of cards win lose or draw and you pick the outcome before the game starts so based on the outcome you've got and based on the result or how the team um you know manages the next 15 minutes of this scenario based game gives them a psychological challenge gives them a test so now you can measure responses so if you're already 2-0 down when you start the 15 minute game and you go 3-0 4-0 down what happens you know does that do the leaders in the team change the formation mm. um do do they go from sitting in or a high press to a low press do they manage five minutes to build themselves back into the game to then go on and try and score a goal and the goal difference might be the difference that keeps them up and they don't get relegated mm -hmm. um so painting these pictures in scenario and scenarios in in small game environments um you can set challenges you can measure responses um you can look at collective interactions um and you can test and challenge so i'm i'm leaning towards researching scenario based learning a little more um and and looking to add that into my environment because i think it has relevance and, it, and if let's let's say you're working with a bunch of u12 players I, I i think you know having an element of your you know your your chelsea or your you know you're a newcastle or, or you're a, you're another premier league team and you build this visual behind it they start to imagine it in their minds and you paint the picture of there's a stadium around you and there's there's 45,000 in there praying that you win this game to stay up you know the the subconscious and, and the memory doesn't know what's real and what's not so just by by creating that scenario hopefully you would like to think it's it's being stored in a way that has a has an impact on their performance and has an impact on their thought process when they leave your environment. Mm. Going from almost going back to mental mental toughness, um, your your company Beyond Pulse mm -hmm. does you know it, 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 a lot of health stuff with coaches. Yes, you know we talked about in the initial conversation was does mental toughness do you require fitness levels for mental toughness? What's your thoughts of coaches having to be mentally fit and active? Mm. Now we're talking, Gary. Now yeah, we're talking. now we're getting there. <laughs> Culture of accountability. Yeah, I mean, we um we've we've just been with ID two, very you know professional elite environment. Um, some fantastic guys there who do drive standards, who 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 are who are accountable for their performance, and and what our what our system allows you to do are. You know, whilst it measures player health and, and you can use it for optimizing performance through through four or five very simple to to read and then transfer metrics, you can look at coach interventions. So we have a metric that measures active participation for, for every player. And active participation is, is time spent above um, 60 percent of your heart rate. 
um, we're actually having a, an addition to that in terms of measuring it by a metabolic rate as well. So whether you're sleeping would be a zero or one would be you waking up and walking around slowly uh, and the numbers go up from a metabolic perspective. So, um, you know, we, we've developed a system that can look critically or help coaches look critically at their their interventions. Now, if let's say you want your players in the red zone for four minutes of every activity and you're trying to optimise performance for for a tournament three weeks from now, um, you know, as a DOC one, you can, you can take a look at whether your coaches are getting your, your players into that red zone in terms of preparation and performance. You can also see if they're overexerting from our exertion metric and burning their players out. So when they go to a tournament three weeks from now and underperform, um, because they're, they're knackered and, and they've hit the red zone way too many times, um, you're accountable, right? It's not the players why you weren't working hard enough. Why are you tired? Well, maybe I didn't periodize my my training plan accurately enough to to get the best out of my players. Mm. Maybe my interventions every time I step in are three minutes long and I'm talking um, way too much. Um, that I'm I'm reducing the flow and intensity of my practices. You know, maybe my transition from activity to activity is taking too long, and just by measuring measuring heart rate um, and looking at the interventions from that, we now have a coaching footprint that tells you how you're performing, um, which is, you know, we, we, we felt it pertinent to, to look for and challenge the performance of, of the environment um, and the environment that, that coaches are creating for their players. We're responsible, right? Um, and if, if you don't take that responsibility seriously enough, um, you're you're letting your players down. I always laugh on Twitter whenever I, if I post something, you know, a, a quote, or I usually get at least two or three responses that says, "Same applies to coaches." And I always it always makes me laugh because why would it not apply to coaches? Yeah. Like, do we yeah. do you think that that's a do you do you think just on that? Do you think that we completely overlook the fact of the coach's role in the environment? I think we do. I think um, whilst we try to be invisible at times, um, there's a huge onus on preparing and creating, you know, an, an environment that can optimize performance, that can maintain a player's health, that can help collectively the players and, and the staff or the coaches think critically about every phase of an activity. Um you know, it, it can be exhausting. I'll, I'll come off after a 90-minute practice sometimes and I'm like, why am I tired? That was an hour and a half. <laughs> and then you, then you think back to, well, hang on, look at the preparation you've spent in the last five days to get to this point. Look at the, the collective, you know, the, the, the intensity of your delivery. You know, look at the, the, the range and toning in your, in your voice, in your demonstrations, in the speed of your demonstrations. You know, it, it, you're putting in a shift. That's the reality. And if you're not putting in a shift, then then again, you're underserving your players. Um, and, and the role of the coach can, can very much be overlooked um, in terms of how it affects the players from, a, from every, every single aspect of the game. I mean, if I talk in a monotone way for, for an hour and a half um, and I go in and demo at half speed and, and I let my players then kinesthetically, if I'm stopping to make a coaching point, run through the scenario at half speed. Um, and I step out, then what was the point? Mm. You know, what was the purpose? 
And then I then I then I go back to the sideline and stand there and watch my players perform at half speed and then criticize them. Well, hang on, that was my fault. That's not the players' fault. That was my fault for delivering poorly. Um, you know, and and I always say, look, if whether you've got kids or you haven't, if you did have or if you have, if you give that your your child to somebody to refine and develop, you know, as a parent, you better do a good job. This is my precious, you know, my precious child here who I love and adore and want the very best for. But not only had you better refine and develop them, you better challenge them. You better test them in the right way. And knowing how to test and challenge a a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old that isn't psychologically developed to the to the rest of the group it takes time and research and education and collective discussions um, to know how to do it mm. and then to practically test it and, and fail um, to get to where you need to be. So if you don't have that desire and intention and, and purpose to be the very best coach you can be and serve your environment the best you possibly can, then then just stop. Don't do it anymore because you're, you're wasting your own time and, and the people around you. And again, all said, in my own opinion. Brilliant. <laughs> it's, not, it's not an answer. Ah, it's brilliant. Brilliant. All right. Last two for you. Cool. Look, Far looking, away. Looking forward to this. Best player played with. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. God, I've got to pick one, have I? Yeah. This is it. Mm. I'm going to give you a top five and then I want to select one. So, King, Skulls, Boxic, Janino, Mendieta at his very best. Wow. Um, and I'm going to add a six in there, Ryan Giggs, because he's one of the best wingers of all time. Mm. So six. My number one and the one I enjoyed playing with the most was Paul Scholes. Scholes. Paul Scholes, without doubt. Three games with him, four games. I mean, 10 games in four years, Gary, is a terrible ratio. <laughs> United, but try try. Trying to knock these characters out of the team uh, was not easy. And how do you go up to, to the gaffer's door, knocking it and say, why aren't I playing when they've won the last 20 games? Yeah. Uh, not not sure how that, that works, but um, Skulls definitely. Um, it's tight, I'll be honest. But he, he, just, he just takes it on ability, on his... his uh, his range of passing. I've never had somebody hit me so often with passes that dropped exactly where I needed it to be, whether it's right foot, right side of the defender. So I could protect the ball, whether it's right into my path as I'm sprinting ahead, didn't have to break stride, whether it's him seeing a, you know, off a little bit of clever movement, clipping the ball, not at you into the space he knows you're going to, mm. you know, I, I see players try and hit, individuals you're not hitting the individual that individual's making a run to create space to move into you got to hit the space so he can get in onto it and that was something skulls he had in abundance Brilliant. um so yeah paul skulls takes top spot not bad not a bad top six um best player played against <laughs> or played against um it's between you know what? I'm going to go between, and this is a fun one, Vieira and Moy Keane. Mm. 
because um, we played, obviously, being sold to Middlesbrough. My first game against them was Boxing Day of 2001. And lining up against the Skulls, Keane and Veron, it was actually a greening Wilson um, and uh, Jeremy at the time. So two ex-United boys against, you know, some old foes. And it's funny when you have to prove a point or you're, you're determined to prove a point. Um, you go and make it and you make a statement. We actually won that game 3-1. But no joke when I say playing against Keeney was one of the hardest, toughest experiences of my life. Mm. Um, again, relentless. Never got a spare minute. Never got a second on the ball. Never got more than a half step or a half second to make a pass. Um, you know, challenging. You, you, your bones rattle every time he challenges you. Um, and just, yeah, un- unbelievable to, to try and play against him. Um, and Vieira was, was just, I'll tell you what, we were, we were one nil up in my first, first game for Middlesbrough. Um, sorry, one nil down with 12 minutes to, to play. And I was playing actually with Paul Ince at this time in the midfield. And every now and again, Ince would look over me and just go, he's unbelievable, isn't he? <laughs> Uh, yeah, and it's in the middle of the game, no joke. And and Vieira was one of those. You think you go by him and then this telescopic leg comes out. He scoops the ball away from you. You're kind of trying to maintain your balance. And as you kind of get up and turn around, he's five strides ahead down the other side of the field. <laughs> and you're like, what What just happened? Um, but when you, when you think it's not only him, it was Perez and Henri and Lundberg. And and players like that just sprinting away from you, you're like, what, what? Where am I? And we ended up losing that game four nil. They went they went from third gear, and we're one nil, thinking we're we're in the game. We really weren't. Mm. They went through two gears and scored three goals in like eight eight to ten minutes, and um, that was a willow welcome to Middlesbrough, um, and uh, you know welcome to playing one of the the best teams. In the, in the Premier League, but Vieira was just outstanding. He didn't give a pass away. He didn't miss a challenge. You couldn't run away from him. Um, just, you know, another phenomenal world-class player. Brilliant. Mark, thank you so much. This has been, uh, I could I could sit and talk all day about this. <laughs> so, um, maybe maybe we'll do we'll do a second one someday. We'll get you on again. Hey, I'd love to. Look, just, just want to say, love, love everything you're doing. Um, Love, love the focus on, on developing coaches and um, keep up the fantastic work, Gary, and thank you for having me on. Brilliant. Thanks so much to Mark for his insight and his time there. Like I said at the start of the show, I think you're going to enjoy his experience and how he interprets mental toughness uh, with the players he played with. The David Beckham and Sebastian Veron uh, comparison is just phenomenal for me because two great great players one cracked it at a higher level um, at Manchester United and, and one struggled and it looked as if it was mental toughness and, and resilience and things like that there so it was really really interesting hearing that uh, the stuff on Roy Keane you know the the intensity the pe- people today that demand standards and the thing for me coming out of it is how do you how do you create an environment that is demanding without being too demanding where players are, are kind of feel feel too pressured and, and, and almost don't enjoy it? And, and that was my thing for mental toughness and fitness testing. I found the two go together. I, I didn't do fitness testing one year 
with one of my college teams and I, and I found that it, it didn't give us an edge. It probably went the other way where players didn't feel as if they earned the confidence and, and weren't comfortable enough that they paid the price in training. And I find that in a professional environment, it maybe is, is slightly limited in its impact because you've got so much time with the players. But with the college environment, with you're looking at making an impact in 10 days in pre-season for some schools. And for some schools, it's even smaller. It's seven days, five days for a pre-season window at, at high school or some colleges. So if that's the case, then you've got to find something in those five, seven, 10 days that's going to make an impact to your mental toughness or resilience. And if that is doing a fitness test, I think that, that that's something you should be doing if it's putting the players through uh, some form of testing where they can test um, fitness and, and a little bit of team spirit. I think it's, it's a good thing. My last thing is that I think as coaches, we should be open-minded to maybe what maybe not as what, what is right at one side doesn't impact the other. For example, you know, you look at fitness testing and it's easy to throw your hands up and say, what a stupid comment on Twitter because, you know, if I've, I've written books on the fact that every component of the game should be working on a tactical model or should be aligned with your philosophy. Fitness testing doesn't do that. But I think what we should be open to as coaches is the fact that maybe one thing has an indirect influence on another. So maybe a fitness test has an impact on team spirit and team bonding more than maybe taking the team bowling or taking them to the movies, maybe working together and, and going through struggles. Maybe a player who doesn't see the field a lot at college but is a really, really good athlete, maybe they get confidence from expressing themselves. Maybe they won't get to express themselves throughout the season in the games. Maybe the fitness test is somewhere where they get a little bit more comfortable. And, and, and that's something I've been worried about in, in the past five, six years is like not every player is going to get to excel on the field. But if you want to produce an environment or create an environment where everyone is comfortable and confident, then you have to allow people to excel in different areas. So that's why the weights room comes in handy. That's why I think every team should be doing it to some extent in college and, and, the, and the fitness testing as well. Because if you've only got X amount of hours, you're looking at impacting those X amount of hours as best as you can. And, and sometimes uh, we should be a little bit more open-minded in what we're doing. That. I'm not saying that's right. What I'm saying, we should be open-minded. So really appreciate that from Mark. We'll try and get him on again because I only think we, we scratched the surface there of, of, of the next level would be, you know, how do we impact more in our environments? You know, if we've only got them Tuesday or Thursday, how do we create that there? Uh, he's talking Manchester United day in, day out. So really interesting stuff. I love that. I love about creation environments and how we can test. I think mental resilience is becoming a skill if it's not already. And coaches who can do that in a really positive and challenging way that players are engaged and, and parents are bought in. I think it's I think it's absolutely brilliant. So um, thanks so much for listening again. Please, 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 uh, when you hang up, please just give it a little tweet, a little like. means a lot. Uh, driving as much engagement through these podcasts as always. And it's great just to get tweets here and there about it and, and uh, disagreements, whatever you think. So thanks so much for listening. Have a great week and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kerneen on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.